Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's One Million by One Million podcast. In this edition, we are speaking with Andrew Romans of Rubicon Venture Capital. Welcome, Andrew, to the show. Hello, Sharana. Thanks for having me. So, Andrew, let's let's get acquainted. Our uh, audience is, as you know, one million by one million entrepreneurs trying to get to a million dollars in annual revenue. Of course, not million, million entrepreneurs are not going to get funded, but there is a you know lot, there's a lot of entrepreneurs in the portfolio and in the community who are looking to understand funding and getting to know investors. So let us get to know you. What, are, what is your investment focus? How big is the fund? What size investments do you like to make? Let's uh, start understanding the fund. Okay, sure. So Rubicon Venture Capital has uh, two main offices in Silicon Valley and New York City. We also have 18 venture partners that are located in places like London, Zurich, Tokyo, around the world. Um, mm-hmm. So, And the limited partners that have invested the bulk of the money, in addition to the money that um, the general partners, including myself, have put in, are uh, primarily outside of the United States. So we have lots of investors who put in relatively small checks that are really like angel investors that invested mm-hmm. small checks into our fund. And the, the most of them are located in Silicon Valley, and they work at large tech titans that you've heard of. And many of them are entrepreneurs that sold their companies to those large companies. So they founded, raised capital, exited, and went through that experience. And investing in a VC fund makes probably more sense to them than investing in the stock market. And um, we also have family offices and large corporations and some institutional investors that are writing wrote much bigger checks into our fund, um, and and they're primarily located in places like Japan, China, Europe, and around the United States. And collectively, what what I think makes Rubicon a little different is that we don't have investment from sort of anonymous pension funds or insurance companies that are purely just looking for a financial return. A lot of these people actually want to interact with the startups that we invest in. So when we're investing we sort of extend beyond the full-time employees of Rubicon to this network of LP investors. And, and they're often sourcing deals. They're helping us do due diligence on deals. And they're adding value to the companies after we've made the investment. And in some cases, they're eager to even potentially acquire some of these, some of these businesses. Um, on, on stage-wise, we invest for a first-time shot. We're typically investing in what we're calling late-stage seed. Some of these companies might be pre-revenue, um, but if they're pre-revenue, they've probably already raised at least $1 million, um, and probably from some investors that we've heard of, so very notable angels or VCs. Um, we t- our sweet spot is we typically like to see the startup has at least $100,000K US dollars of monthly reoccurring revenue. Um, mm-hmm. And then... I kind of think right now a lot of the big Sand Hill Road VCs, their funds have gotten so large that what people call Series A today is almost what Series B used to be in ancient times of the early 2000s or 90s. And, um, it, and for that, they kind, of, they kind of want to see 500K MRR, monthly reoccurring revenue. So Rubicon oh, more than that, we are, uh, 
So you're saying 100K recurring revenue is what you want to see, and um, you're saying you're pegging the largest Series A's at 500K MRR. Is that the uh, is that the comparison you're making? Yeah. So I'm saying that um, we will come in before what people are calling a Series A today, and we'll come in with a company that's got 100K of revenue um, when the big big VCs are hoping to see 500K of monthly revenue. And okay, we'll work with those. So we'll try to work with these companies and do everything we can to grow the revenue. Very, very involved in helping our companies grow revenue. And then when they're ready, uh, we may, you know, we know VCs that invest at the same stage we do and even before us. And so we'll, we'll help a lot with introductions to other investors to join us that we like to work with that we think are very suitable and value add to that company. And when it gets time for that big Series A, and they are getting close to 500, we will make a target investor list, make warm introductions, and and uh, you know introduce these companies so that they can run a real process and then determine the best lead for that Series A, where we write a much bigger check. So actually, about 25, about 20, about 20 percent of our fund capital is deployed into a diversified portfolio of about 25 different startups in about a two to three year period, which makes us active and we look very brave investing in this late seed, but about 80% of our money is writing much bigger checks into those that are hitting into that big Series A. Um, mm -hmm. or, and, then, and then some of our money is going into follow on investing and even the Series B. We also do something that's very different from other funds in that we allow our LPs to co-invest with us beyond the money they put in the fund via special purpose vehicles that we call sidecar funds. So some family office from Europe will put some money in the fund. They might like one company more than another, and they might decide to put another $5 million into the SPV for one of our startups on the Series A, B, C, or even after our fund has stopped investing in very late-stage growth rounds. And a couple of the small angels in the Valley or New York or Japan, these angels might just be putting in small 25, 50K, 500K checks alongside that big corporate or family office that did a big check. So we will support the companies all the way through to pre-IPO or M&A exit um, via these SPVs, but our fund is mostly first time investing as late seed, follow-ons or um, you know, Series A, and by the time you're getting to Series B, um, that might be their final investment or we might have already kind of achieved the ownership targets that we wanted uh, for, the, for our own portfolio construction. Sector-wise, right now we're investing out of a $50 million fund that has a hard cap of 100. So we're already make, very actively making investments. So mm -hmm. for your audience, we're very actively looking for deal flow. I would say if the company has not raised um, at least a million dollars um, of outside non-founder funding capital, um, we, we prefer not to hear from them. Um, we'd like to see companies that have raised at least a million from someone that's not on the founding team. And if they founders invested, that's great, but, but, but uh, we want to see outside investors that put in a million. And we do like to see companies that are up to 100K MRR, but sometimes we like to get to know the company before then. Um, so let me ask you a question here. Um, sure. We have a philosophy in our program, in our methodology, bootstrap first, raise money later. So we have companies mm -hmm. that have 
gone well past your 100K MRR with no outside financing whatsoever. From what I'm hearing, mm-hmm. you don't want to hear from these kinds of companies. I mean, uh, uh, unless they've got another VC uh, or, or uh, angel that we know at the table, I actually don't. I don't okay. want, to, I want to hear it. Uh, th- th- there's a lot of reasons for that, maybe beyond the time that we have. Um, but uh, there are many investors who are seeking the glory of being the very, very first. I'm happy to be in the first round of outside funding, and we've very often been in that in our existing portfolio companies. But I'd like to see someone that I know, uh, you know, kind of bring it to me saying, I'm putting in, you know, you know this amount of money. Do you want to join me? Because we know you can help, um, you know, rather than and be the first person. And what sectors do you have money. your corporate relationships in? So um, we uh, we avoid all things healthcare life science as well as healthcare IT. Uh, we avoid things that are capital intensive. That means most kind of clean tech type things or companies that have the characteristics of biotech where there's a, a, a serious degree of total binary failure risk. So like a clinical trial might come back with bad e- efficacy and so that's the end of that. Um, and if we see something like that in the company, that's part of why for some companies it can be pre-revenue. It's not a problem for us. But for a lot of companies, they're saying our box will work a thousand times better than working with a human and we'll replace this with AI ML software. Um, and with no customer paying for it, it's a hypothesis. And when we see some revenue then we can talk to the customers, and see it working at some level of scale, we can verify that it is indeed a thousand times better, and it works. Well, um, in our uh, portfolio, this is not even an issue because we only do IT and IT-enabled services companies. So we don't do clean tech, we don't do biotech, we do healthcare IT. That is actually something that we see a lot of activity in. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in healthcare IT, you can prove what you need to prove hypothesis-wise uh, with small amounts of capital. Uh, right, and there's often not, and there's not, there's often no risk of total binary failure with the FDA in these healthcare IT companies. That's right. Um, That's right. And 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 one day we will, um, you know, focus on healthcare IT. But for the moment, uh, we we are so overwhelmed with deal flow that um, being able to say no to something is just a relief. So um, are you B two B? We we're probably about seventy percent enterprise and thirty percent consumer. On, cons- on enterprise, we're more likely to go in very early. With consumer, when something comes to us from our network and we, we see very strong um, uh, unit economics where the CAC to LTV ratio is crazy impressive. So the cost of acquiring customer, you know, the companies are saying, you know, we're on 15 websites where we acquire our customers and we're constantly optimizing that and we spend you know, $200 to acquire a customer and we, we, we make $200 back within six weeks and the LTV, lifetime value of that customer is like a thousand bucks or more and we're growing at this pace and this is the change when we turn the volume up or down and we're thinking of ways to even lower the CAC with other distribution channels we might be able to bring. I don't want to say no to that because I'm, I'm, I've told my investors that I'll only do enterprise B2B tech. So we, we, we kind of need to see something that's already working for us to get into a B2C 
type of opportunity that might just be very powerfully leveraging the internet and smartphones and things like that or some distribution channels and a big addressable market that we like. But most of the stuff that we really spend most of our time with is enterprise technology, B2B stuff. I, I, I really hate it when, if you ask 100 Chinese investors what VCs, what they invest in, they will give you the same list of buzzwords in pretty much the same order. And I almost am embarrassed when I'm saying the same thing, but we, we invest in companies that have core, hardcore real technology that can create some sort of moat and prevent competitors from copying them you know, quite easily. And these days, that means software that, you know, does the work that in an existing value chain. So if you look at any industry, and this is real, software will eat the world in action, that if you look at the loan industry of how do you get a mortgage in the United States, just like healthcare, we've completely screwed up how we do that. And there's a lot of people to blame for it, but these guys are fixing it. So when you go to get a mortgage, it takes about 47 days to get one. And some of the things that these people do at the bank to give you that mortgage is, you know, print out an email, walk across the room, fax something, or reach out to someone else to figure out how many credit cards you've got and, you know, ask you multiple times or entering in your, your tax ID, social security, like a hundred different times. With Lenda, which we invested in, they just automate all this stuff. So every day they go to work and write more software that you know, goes from 47 days, now the, the, the computer, the software, does the job that that human used to do. And so now we went from 47 days to 40 days. And now they're getting it down to like 16 days. And so you don't have to pay people to do work. And ultimately, you should be able to apply for your mortgage on your mobile phone, hit a button, and it's almost instant of, I've got a mortgage or I don't have a mortgage. And this is the interest rate they're offering me. Um, and you know, price comparison, you know, or anything like that. So, I think that in any value chain, you can look at how is it done now, and can we use technology to do that more efficiently, better, safer, you know, better user experience, lowering the cost, giving, a, you know, uh, lo- giving savings to, to, to the customer, whether it's enterprise or consumer. And so these are areas of kind of dynamic software that's connected to the Internet, that's able to process lots of data, that has APIs to all kinds of other databases and systems, and so a lot of the VCs are just calling this AI, ML, big data, you know, cloud. That's ridiculous. That just means it's on the internet. So it's not on your mainframe. The, in, in sort of transformational technologies. And where are your corporate relationships? Where do you have unfair advantage based on your corporate investors who are your LPs? Where can you take um, entrepreneurs where other VCs cannot take. There's so much money flushing around right now, um, you know, for a, for a really good company. You're looking for companies that have a lot of people chasing them to give them money. So why, why yeah. would they go with you versus others? Well, I, I mean, I think that um, if, you, if you were, I'm just going to use an example, and, and Verizon is not a limited partner investor in my fund. They might be one day, but if you take funding from Verizon Wireless Ventures, as an example, as a CDC, keep in mind that they don't really care about the return that they're going to make. Um, they don't want to lose money, but they're not overly excited of making a 100x return on the investment because they don't compensate their team based on the successful outcome, uh, the profitability of the investment. They might say they do, but they really don't. And, and what they care about is 
strategic value to their core business, which is a $100 billion a year revenue company. Um, if you take funding as a startup from Verizon Wireless Ventures and they become a customer or a distribution partner, you've probably just made an irreversible decision that you can't fix, which is that T-Mobile, Sprint, and AT&T Wireless will not talk to you anymore. They're not going to work with you. They're not going to buy your company. You've, you've picked a side in a, a, a competitive environment where they're basically at war with each other. If Verizon were to invest in our funds and we introduced the startup to Verizon, possibly even before making the investment or possibly after, um, and Verizon becomes, starts selling this product or service in all 10,000 of their stores and pushing it out to millions and millions of handsets, that's incredibly strategic. And that can really help the company without shutting the door to doing business or even being acquired by AT&T and T-Mobile. And we wouldn't give a board seat to anyone at Verizon where they where we're saying, should the company raise another $10 million or should we accept the offer on the table from Verizon's corp dev team that wants to buy the company? The guy from Verizon Wireless, if he were on the board, would say, I think we should sell the company now. And, and a VC like me might say, even though I've taken money from Verizon, I think we should raise another $10 million and make Verizon pay four times more to buy the company, either right away after completing the funding round or make them wait and we're getting more expensive by the day. So I think that um, being able to broker business relationships with large corporations while not creating limitations and capping the upside for the entrepreneur and other investors is powerful in itself. And so we, that's that's a great we, um, great explanation of the of the model. Now uh, answer my question: Which industries or what kinds of sectors do you have these special relationships? You said you don't have okay. it with Verizon, so or it sounds like yeah. that's not the sector where you have the relationships. I, I don't. I don't think it's responsible for me to disclose LPs in an open setting. So we're, you can see 18 of our you LPs are sectors, public. You can talk about sectors, right? Yeah, 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 sure. Well, if you, look at, if you look at our website and you click on team, you can see who our venture partners are, and every single one of them is an investor personally in the fund. Um, and so that, that we're able to disclose. But I would say things ranging from consumer electronics, including smartphones, laptops, um, there, there's oil and gas companies, um, you know, in our LP base. There's, um, you know, internet fixed and mobile advertising, you know, companies. There are VCs that are investors. Um, it's a broad set of industries. Also, over the last year and a half since my book on Masters of Corporate Venture Capital was published, um, I've been having half-day seminars and then kind of two, three-hour evening events in all over the world where I, I invite very senior people from large corporations that either already have a corporate venture capital program or an open innovation program or they're thinking about launching one. And this is often the CFO, the head of strategy, people from the M&A corp dev team. And I've done this everywhere from San Francisco to Miami to New York to Denver to Boulder in lots of places in the United States, but also in places like Singapore, Indonesia, Japan, um, 
what else? Um, we've done it in in Paris, London, um, Sao so Paulo. So that's actually a good uh, segue into the discussion on geography. Where do you like to invest? Is there a geographical yeah. boundary or preference? Yes. So uh, we're probably about 70% um, San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, and and then sort of a balance of 30% New York. We these numbers aren't adding up, but um, if it's close to our two core offices, we can go in pretty early. We can consider going in pretty early in London, where we've got a lot of people on the ground, and I have a lot of I lived there for 10 years. But um, the further away from the New York and SF offices, the more later stage we want to see the company. And mm-hmm. there's no rules, there's no government money telling us where we can or cannot invest. So we can invest anywhere on the earth. But um, the further away from those offices, the later stage we want it to be. We want to see a major local VC that we know has already invested in the company or is really leading this round. And we can speak to them and confirm that kind of immediately. Preference-wise, outside of the U.S., I like to, and, we, and we've made one investment outside the United States into Premfina in London, um, which was a large financing round, and I've known the CEO for something like 18 years already, and um, I knew actually every single VC in there very well um, already. Um, but we will invest more in, in, in that area. Areas outside the U.S. that I like the most are London, Stockholm, Berlin, Paris, and Amsterdam. Um, I, I, I worry about investing in um, an ecosystem in a startup located in, in, in an ecosystem without a lot of elements of the ecosystem. So lots of investors for every stage of the continuum from pre-seed onto late-stage pre-IPO phenomenon, um, and not having other elements of the ecosystem that support these companies. Um, That said, I would think over the next 20 years, um, I hope to launch Rubicon Venture Capital in China. I hope to launch Rubicon Venture Capital in India. I would like to have a dedicated fund for the UK, a dedicated fund for France, a dedicated fund for the Middle East, North Africa, and Turkey, and, and Singapore for Southeast Asia. And I think that the only place in the world that doesn't want a Silicon Valley in their home turf is Silicon Valley. And I think the governments are going to be putting together programs that they already have them to anchor VC funds to invest in local startups. And when that wave happens, we'll be investing in local startups and, and telling them, when are you coming to Silicon Valley? I've got a week of meetings lined up for you, for your growth financing, since there probably is no growth financing in, in your region, and introducing you to big balance sheet buyers. Roughly 82% of all VC-backed companies worldwide get acquired by American domiciled buyers, Google, YouTube, Oracle, all that. Um, so so that's, that's kind of like, a, and, then, and then I hope that the dots will connect in the reverse direction. We can start, if we have local teams working with local LPs in Jakarta or something in Singapore, we can introduce our California startups to do business there you know, more efficiently. How do you process unicorn mania? I think I think um, a lot of VCs who are telling their investors when they're raising capital that we will get into a unicorn startup or else you're going to lose money. I think statistically, if you look at how many companies achieve a billion-dollar valuation um, and how many venture financings there are in this region, 
that it's statistically, mathematically not likely or probable that the VC will get into a unicorn. So I think it's important to develop a financial model and a portfolio construction that gives a large degree of expectation that you will be very profitable without even needing to get into a unicorn valuation. So if you, we like to see that any investment the fund makes can achieve a 10x return, even with dilution of future rounds if we're not investing all the way up to exit. So when you see a company with a $100 million pre-money valuation, um, you might get a 2x or a 4x, and so we'll do an SPV for that, but we wouldn't put money in from the fund. And we, we really don't do SPVs unless the fund is already in the deal. Um, so if you, so if is, you your expectation, MA, um, is your expectation that you're going to be selling out before exit? In some cases, yes. So a, a lot of VCs, in, in ancient times, VCs hated secondaries and it was a negative signal if anyone is selling. And in modern times, after Sarbanes-Oxley and say private forever, like, you know, there's no reason for Palantir or Uber or Lyft to even worry about an IPO because they have liquidity and they have all the expansion capital they need and they don't have to worry about compliance and all that oversight and open the kimono of all, share their numbers with their competitors and everything. So there's a lot of reasons to not IPO these days. And VCs, we, you know, Rubicon, like many VCs, has got a 10 to 12-year time horizon. And uh, so I think that it, when you see companies get to a really high valuation, it starts to make sense to uh, divest a bit. And I think that if we can return our capital and only sell 20% of our position in a startup that we've invested in, uh, that makes sense. And in some cases, we can even offer that secondary to our own LPs first. And we can mm -hmm. have LPs that invested in a sidecar SPV, say, at a $8 million valuation. And when the company is raising money at a you know, $800 million valuation, that might be, make a lot of sense for an individual guy with twins that just got into Stanford that's going to cost him a lot of tuition. Um, to say, you know, I'm going to go and sell 10% of my position in that first SPV um, and benefit from this huge uptick in valuation. So I think selling shares on the secondary market can make sense. Um, I think it's pragmatic to start at some point selling 20% of your position each time the company does the financing. If, the, if you're in a company like Palantir that's essentially publicly traded and it's going up in value so quickly, you might take a, take a, a rationale of saying, okay, I'm going to sell 20% of my position now and every six months I'll consider selling another 20% of the remaining position that I own. Yeah, I agree with uh, with your analysis that um, I think the small funds of your size and and you know, and this segment right now is very flush with capital, right? There are a lot of small funds, even smaller than your fund, and, and maybe a little bit larger. And that segment, I think it makes a lot of sense to, to start selling, um, you know, some of their holdings or all of their holdings if they get enough yeah. returns in secondary. I mean, for, for example, in, in Rubicon Venture Capital Fund 1 currently has a 31% IRR which I think puts us in the top 5% of all vintage 2014 U.S. tech funds. The Rubicon Venture Capital Fund 2 has 105% IRR, 
unrealized IRR on capital that we've deployed already into seven startups. And we're very actively investing right now, but we're continuing to raise capital from angel investors, family offices, large corporations, and institutional LPs. And by being able to show that we invested in this company at an $8 million valuation, then we invested again at a $25 million valuation with a big lead Sandhill VC, or we invested in this one at a $30 million valuation, and then we invested again at a $140 million valuation. There were opportunities to sell. These are all oversubscribed rounds where VCs have sharp elbows, being very rude and throwing each other under the bus to get as much of the round as they can and not sharing as much as they should. And we tend to be good at sharing, and maybe that's easy when you're small, and it's hard when you, you don't know how to move your billion-dollar, $3 billion fund. Into, well, into there's also a perfect opportunities to sell out. Well, that's it. So for us, we're, when we're still fundraising, for sure, that's not a big enough return for us to sell out at. And, and we know these companies can get to billion-dollar exits, and we think they're going to get to billion-dollar exits with some of those. Those were real numbers from companies we've invested in out of fund two. And we, we, our position was, all right, well, we definitely don't want to sell out, but this, this gives a huge uptick in the valuation. So we can say to a family office in Singapore or Zurich, look, if you wanted to invest in that company, they just closed money, oversubscribed at a $140 million valuation of the $47 million that went into it, um, 35 was secondary. So that's all cash out, and then some money went in to grow the company. They didn't want to sell too much at the $140 million valuation. You cannot get into that deal at 140. It's already done, and it went as big as it could on secondaries for those that were ready to get out and some liquidity for the founders. We invested in that thing also at 30 million. So you could never get into that at 30 million, but you can buy ownership units in our fund, which gets you into that company at 30 and at 140. And so it becomes, it becomes a way to, like NEA being the biggest fund, they announced we're raising our fund 21 or fund 18, you know, you know from 1973 till now on a Monday. And by Friday, they've closed 3.2 billions with all their existing investors re-upping into the next fund. For Rubicon, I'm a startup founder like, like you know, like your community. I founded mm-hmm. Rubicon and have to get up the mountain myself and it takes time, and it's a process, and you've got to prove your track record. Yeah, and, yeah I think uh, the only danger yeah. I see in what you're saying is that there are a lot of artificially bloated, you know, billion-dollar valuation companies out there. So, um, you know, I think uh, your point is well taken, that showing that you can get to these high valuations and up rounds and so forth is great for your LPs, but some of it right now is also distorted just because there is such so much capital, the NEAs of the world have so much capital, they're, they're really driving up, uh, you know, valuations yeah. and, and well, overfunding well, if companies. The, if, I mean, the SEC doesn't even understand what these deals actually look like, and most people don't either. People just say, oh, that, that company raised money at a $70 billion valuation. People are structuring deals in very creative, synthetic ways. So sometimes someone says, I'll sell you stock in this privately held company at a $20 billion valuation, but if the company goes public and the valuation of the stock is below $20 billion but above $8 billion, and that feels very safe, 
then you will have the option to sell the shares you know, at below at a 20% discount to eight. So they're actually like building these uh, structured clauses into the contract between buyer and seller that give an artificially high valuation. So some VC is saying, look, I can return my whole fund based on my Uber investment, when in reality, the buyer has got a near risk-free investment um, to make a 2x. Some of them say stuff like, um, I'll buy yeah. the stock from you, and if I make, if I make more than a 2x on my investment, I will share 50-50 any upside with you. And they do that in a way that gives a valuation to the company that TechCrunch writes about, but it, it is artificial. And it, it, it is artificial, is yeah. There's a lot of artificial bloating going on, absolutely. So let's uh, switch the discussion to another topic that you are passionate about, ICOs. Tell us a bit about what your thoughts are. Um, how, how do you see ICOs playing out in the capital-raising world? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm currently writing a book on ICOs. So if anyone is hearing this, and has the experience of a very successful ICO, I'd love to hear from you. Because um, I'm interviewing people that have successfully ICO'd. Um, I've invested in some ICOs. One of our portfolio companies had a very successful ICO that I invested in personally. Um, and I think a lot of people think like, oh, this is a real fad bubble that's going to go away. I think there's a huge amount of uncertainty of what's going to happen with regulators. But if you think of it, I think that it's not just for startups. I think you're going to see large corporations doing ICOs, like Domino's Pizza, which is probably the worst pizza in the world, being originally from New York. It's, I wouldn't want to ever eat it. But someone like that could offer tokens um, to people to buy that very bad pizza. And um, they could raise a ton of money. It's just like you know, Costco you know, has my family lending them 100 bucks a year um, to give me some, like, I don't know, cash back or something, and if I don't go above a certain point, I get the money back anyway. That's, far, that's like zero-cost uh, debt that's you know, possibly in the hundreds of millions of dollars from your customers. They should be doing to create their own token economy. Um, so I think that, that ICOs are going to get bigger, and if, imagine that you raise a $100 million fund to invest only into ICOs, that if you invest above a certain dollar value into the ICO, you get like a 50% discount on the token if you're in the pre-sale. And if you invest in the first tranche of it up to a specific amount, you get another discount. And then when the public sale happens, and if there is buyers and sellers in a real economy for that token, um, it may go up. Or even if it's just if you're just able to get out flat at the initial coin offering price, and you had a 50% discount, you can literally get liquid quite quickly. So with those funds, when you off if if you offered them to invest in the regular startup, God help you, a convertible note, or just a price round buying equity in a company, you don't have a vibrant secondary market for every single company, especially the early stage ones or anything healthcare related. Uh, one of the reasons we avoid healthcare life science is that there's no secondary market typically for them. That, 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 um, you know, why should they invest in regular equity? So I think you're going to see more and more people raise real funds that are focused on investing in you know, utility and asset-backed token economy type 
securities and they, they will have some liquidity and they benefit from those discounts that are offered uh, at the moment. And so I would expect this to, it might go up and down like a roller coaster, but, it, and for the entrepreneur, if you can raise money without getting diluted and not have the hassle of VCs on your board, that's appealing to a lot of, to a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, it's appealing to a lot of VCs that, um, like, we raised $30 million for Unicorn, the company called Unicorn, without any dilution to the company and, and in a way that, you know, engages with their customers and community. Um, so th that's attractive. Well, I think the assumption is that the token economy in that in whichever ICO, uh, whichever token economy you're funding works. If it doesn't, well, then it's... <laughs> that's right. And I think that, um, and that's worth saying, that uh, you don't get a lot of rights and privileges in, in a token, and most VCs uh, are scratching their heads saying, I'm not going to invest in a token like it's an Amsterdam tulip bulb bubble um, as a speculator. I want to, by equity, help the company. And as I help the company or bet that the company is going to do well, I benefit. Whereas just the speculation of the token doesn't feel comfortable to most VCs. And I think we're seeing more and more pegging of the value of the token to the value of the company. And that'll start making more sense to your classic hands-on value-added, Silicon Valley-minded you know, you know, VC. I'd also say that there seems to be a certain element of like bad boiler room, like the movie Boiler Room or The Wolf of Wall Street or Penny Stock, reverse shell merger, you know, you know, securities fraud type stuff where I have seen a lot of startups that struck out with angels, struck out with VCs and said, well, if no one else is going to fund me, I'm going to try an ICO. And so the unfundable uh, many of them have done ICOs and no, no, no sophisticated investor with a huge funnel and a lot of choice would do that. And those that maybe did invest in it are very short-term or are looking to exit as soon as they can. And so these are things to stay away from. At the same time, there's some that having a blockchain, you know, total trust database underpinning something like money exchanging hands does make sense. And these companies have real revenue already, and it is a sensible ICO. So lots of ones to stay away from. Yeah, I think there's a lot of garbage, and there are a few good ones. But uh, what are your pointers to for people who are trying to understand good ICO examples? What are, what are ones that you consider are good, credible ICOs? Okay, well, I'll talk about I'll talk about um, the one, you know, one of the ones in our portfolio that I invested in. So Raul Stude was the um, head of Microsoft Ventures, and so I knew him there. And then he left Microsoft Ventures to acquire a company they had invested in and merge it with a new company he established called Unicorn. So it's U-N-I-K-R-N, Unicorn. So it's an ambitious name for a startup, obviously calling yourself Unicorn. They do real money gambling for esports. So... Madison Square Garden will sell out three to five nights in a row for people paying money to watch other people play video games. I'm not really in the peer set, but I recognize that that's a real thing. And people like to gamble on sporting events, and people love to gamble on esports. 
and that is legal in the UK, it's legal in Australia, but it's not legal in the United States. So in the US, they came up a couple of years ago with their own currency called Unicoin, so that American um, domiciled people could participate in this gambling and exchange their Unicoins for real-world prices, prizes like airplane tickets and laptops. And, you know, I asked Raul, I said, you know, that's not fooling me. That sounds like real money gambling. And apparently lawyers that know their stuff have looked at this and said it's not real money gambling. So when the ICOs came along, they kind of looked, we all looked at each other and said, well, we already have a crypto type of currency for our company. Maybe we should use the blockchain uh, for this and, you know, have the unicoins exchangeable through, you know, the, these cryptocurrency exchanges. And they raised $30 million, and TechCrunch wrote about the transaction as finally an ICO that actually makes sense. Um, you know, the rest of them were really kind of like equity crowdfunding or return to the dot-com run-up of 1999 of rushing the public for venture financing of unproven companies. And this company is doing very well. It's got real technology, very strong management team, very international. There, it was just... It seemed to check a lot of boxes for what an ICO should be. For me, the only box that it doesn't check is that it's worth doing, supporting people's gambling habits. Yeah, anyway. you know, the, the, that's a fair point. And, and it became clear to me when I was, I was in the Middle East um, in November, and, and I meet people from the Middle East, and I'm flying to Dubai again next Friday, that uh, apparently a lot of these people that have so much money, they all have someone in the family who really destroyed his life on gambling. And um, we've set a policy that uh, we don't want to uh, invest in any additional gambling-related companies. And we're also yeah. in Boom Fantasy, which um, allows for users to make predictions on what's going to happen during an athletic event. So, like, if you're watching a football game, an American football game, they say, like, will he make the field goal? Will they make the, t the, the first down? So while the game's happening, people are answering questions, and you can put some money down at the beginning, and depending on how many answers you got right, you win money or you lose money. That um, These are very profitable investments, but it is a vice, and uh, we've decided that uh, in the future we're not going to invest in more because we don't think it's good. It, it I'm glad to hear that because I have absolutely zero interest in these kinds of businesses. I think there is zero value addition. In fact, it is a vast opportunity for value destruction, and I do not believe in these kinds of companies at all. If, if you talk to the CEOs, they, they, they've probably encountered this before, and they will um, not use words like gambling. I'm being quite, in my opinion, to the point. I think it is gambling, it's and gambling. I do not support these kinds of businesses. I know Rahul Sood. I know very well what he's doing. I, I have no interest in this business. Right, right, right. They, they'll say, they'll use the word fan engagement and say the it's fans are it's, much it's more gambling. Part. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I called, you know, I said what I think it is too, and I said real money gambling. Right. And, and, and you know, the same same, you know, debate that we are currently encountering in a much, much bigger topic, which is addiction to social media and addiction to games. I think the people are realizing that this is not good. It's not healthy. And, and, uh, and I think this debate is going to play out in real time in the next few years is, is like, how much time do we want to spend on these devices? 
and and destroy the you know mental health of of huge populations of people, billions of people. I was speaking to my brother about this this morning. Um, we both have young children, and um, saying that the world the world we grew up in is very different than the world that um, others had, you know, that our parents grew up in. But man, our kids are like can hardly brush their teeth without um, without um, checking their device. And that's not a good iPhone. thing. Yeah, yeah, like they actually have like a video on YouTube running at the same time that they're. Uh, it's terrible. Terrible. All right. On that note, <laughs> it was a pleasure speaking with you, Andrew, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, happy to learn what you're doing, and, and hopefully we'll have opportunities to collaborate. Good luck with your uh, ambitious agenda of uh, doing global venture capital with a new fund. And uh, audience, thank you for listening. It's um, a pleasure yeah, to me, have you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm, I mean, I, I think we were both honest. We we touched. I don't want to end on some negative notes, but I think it's really exciting what you're doing. Um, I'm an entrepreneur first. I had raised over 100 million for my own startups. I've had an IPO, M&A, and failures. Um, and I'm an entrepreneur again with this fund, and really passionate about working with founders to build great companies. So, my email address is Andrew at Rubicon.vc. We're really excited about talking to startups, angels, corporates. Um, institutional LPs that are interested in the asset class and want to partner with us to, you know, fund companies and build companies. Great. Audience, thank you for listening. Uh, we will be back with another edition of the 1 Million by 1 Million podcast. Now, do stop by in one of our weekly uh, free mentoring sessions if you want to work on your business in a safe, uh, you know, strategic discussion. They are, the schedule is available on our website, 1mby1m.com. Go to free public roundtables and all the entire schedule is there. So see you at one of those sessions or be back with you with another edition of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Okay. Thanks for having me. Bye.